Hello. Hi. And welcome. To Plants and Pipettes. Hey. Um, <laughs> we talk about plant science and other things. Normally we focus on plant molecular biology, but not really also. Yeah. Yeah. Like we, tr- we, we try to always circle back to it, but we often fail, I would say. I feel like those circles are getting kind of broader and broader. It's just like... <laughs> I mean, also, guys, yeah, this is this is what life is now. You got to find interest where you can and seek joy. <laughs> yeah, and there's just like only so much plant science to be done in the world. I think um, we learned that by now. After <laughs> I, don't I don't know if that's. I think that's the opposite of the message we want to say. I think there's infinite plant science. There's like very um, finite resources and stories to tell about plant science, and that's why we're also talking about animals a lot by now. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. no, I think it's just because we like animals sometimes. Yeah, but always like it shows me how amazing plants are whenever we talk about animals and then sort of what plants do. And I realize plants are more intelligent and <laughs> I wow, shouldn't do terrible. all of these things that are like high context where people have Should, to understand like a lot of my... It's not even high context. It's like the context is yarm. It's like high yarm context, but it's not... Yeah, but you have to know like other stuff that I cared about in the past, like years ago. Um to understand what I mean. So no, I'm <laughs> I like wow. plants. I like plants. Welcome, I welcome to our podcast where you have to have known Yoram for eight years before you can understand what the hell either of us are talking about. Is that a successful format? Is that is that what we want to be doing now? It's only slightly worse than my continuously referring to like visual things format where I'm like, oh, look at this pretty picture of a worm I just saw. And everybody's like, no, I, I, I'm not here for this. This is not why I listen to podcasts. Are we maybe bad podcasters, Tegan? Is this the Almost time where we realize? <laughs> I mean, we have been told. <laughs> it's You're, we're, we're clearly bad at planning. Yoram has an introduction of this episode that says one word, which is snow. Because that's Tell me about snow. <laughs> that's all that happened. Like we got snow, which is nice. We it's um, so nice. I haven't had v- very nice snow in ages in in Berlin. Um, most of the time, like we had like one snow day and it would immediately turn to like mud. But now we have for a couple of days now very cold weather, a lot of snow. It's staying on the ground. Everything's white and pretty. As it turns out, my my infant son doesn't really like snow, so going outside is. Not the winter wonderland that I imagined having a small child, but it's more like me going around like carrying him, ca- carrying a small child a lot. Um, but apart from that, it's, it's really nice. But it's really then the only exciting thing that happened. Um, I it's went outside. It's so nice, though. I mean, we actually got snow on this this crazy island, which is, I think, shocking, I would say. Like, we had snow and it stuck to the ground. And there was one morning, like on Monday morning... There was snow on the ground, but it was also still falling and like there was low cloud cover from for the sm- falling snow and it was this kind of muffled thing where you just, yeah, everything is, yeah, kind of soft and quiet. And I went out really early in the morning and nobody else was around and yeah, this. That, that is really nice. Yeah. So good. It was very peaceful. Also, I like it that like uh, you have, it feels like you have more light because you have more reflected light from everywhere around. So it stays a little bit brighter for a little mm-hmm, bit longer mm-hmm. so um i like that a lot as well i mean it's also just you can really feel spring starting to come as far as like not the, the coldness but like the light is getting here and you know i wake up now and within a few minutes there's light as opposed to starting work and it's still being dark which yeah. is just lovely it's so nice yeah mm. but that was my exciting thing of the week did you do anything fun last week i don't know i feel like really I don't know. Yes, last week just felt quite exciting. I think like work has been quite stressful. A lot of like new things and busy things and everything. But yeah, like 
going outside a lot, but also I've been making things just like I was cooking. I was making pies, which I haven't done for ages. I was doing crafty things like making earrings. Um, We had this really nice chat over Skype with some friends, which Yoram, you were also involved in. And (laughs) true. I completely forgot. Yeah. But that was, that was really nice. This was amazing. Like one of our friends organized it as a bit of a surprise. I didn't know how many people would be there. There was like, what, maybe 11 of us. And we had people who we kind of, it was our group of friends when I first started my PhD, which is like end of 2012, 2013. That's when you also started. And these people come from everywhere in the world and have now scattered to everywhere in the world. So I think there's like three people in Germany, but those people in Germany, like one was a German, that's you, boring. No, then we had a French person, a Spanish person and a Portuguese person in Germany. Then we had like a Chilean person in Chile, a Chilean person in Ecuador, a Mexican in Mexico, a Kiwi in the USA, a French person in France, Australian me in the UK, Israeli in Israel. Like we just have like it's it's so cool that you know like academia can suck sometimes and having these short-term contracts where you everybody has to move all the time. It's really horrible. But seeing these people again and connecting and realizing how amazing it is that we have these people across the world and that we have the modern technology to interact with all these different people who, you know, they're our friends. We love them, but they also have like, they're doing different things and they come from different backgrounds and we got to like chat with them again. That just made me really, really happy. I was, yeah, it was so cool. Uh, yeah, and that, also, that was, sorry. That was, no, I want to say, I want to, to completely um second what you're saying like it's it's that's one of the the things when i look back at my phd where i had a lot of like dark points that i wasn't happy about i would still not want to miss that i would not want to sort of not have done that because of all of the amazing people that i got to know where i just know i it would be very very hard to get such a diverse mix of cool people together in many other contexts like i haven't had that since um and it's just like it's so cool to see i mean you know we're all progressing with our lives most of us are kind of in our 30s in that kind of range and people like getting kids and getting houses and getting you know changing jobs i think like a third of us are still in academia a third of us are like in industry like kind of in companies and then the the other third are like other which would be you psychom me like editor in a company one of our friends works like in government but this is also nice as like this diverse mix of what people are doing and what stage of their life they're at. But I don't know. This was just, it's so nice. And I'm, we're so, so lucky that we live in a time when we can do this. And I, I mean, I, I'm really missing seeing people. Obviously, I'm, I'm in London. I don't know anybody really in the city. It's It's been rough. But the reality is, even if I was in Berlin, I would only see a couple of these people. So being able to connect with all of the people at the same time was just, yeah, such a nice experience. Really lovely. Yeah, no, absolutely. That was really nice. And I was surprised how well it also worked and sort of to, to get back into like some of our old habits that we had, like the banter that we had and sort of the, the back and forth, like things where you might think they might not translate well to a video call. It actually worked very well. And that, that really, there was a lot of fun. There was a definite sort of high point um, and a much, much uh, missed social interaction that I didn't have in a while because, yeah, 
like you yeah completely isolated and um uh, in the rest of the days i also saw a um a meme going around about zooming i don't know if you've seen it it's like zoom meetings are just modern seances <laughs> it's like people like gathering and there's someone who wants to join us elizabeth are you there we can't hear you can you hear us can you hear us it's just like yes this is it's modern witchcraft and i love it yeah yeah, it's I mean, the closest we we get to magic with technology. The, um, like the the way we can summon people, the way we can talk across the world, the way we can just sometimes just hear voices, uh, or just see faces. I mean, more often than not, I <laughs> you see mouth me uh, moving, um, and then like I think you forgot to press the mute button. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's good. And the other thing I wanted to mention is I've also been trying to read a bit more for funsies recently. So I think like last year, I read so much at work. My my work involves just constant reading and constant reading of like academic papers, which is pretty heavy. And then we also did Plant Book Club, which meant we had a lot of um, like semi-scientific reading still. Like it was kind of mandatory reading. It was definitely fun, but like some of them were a bit more like scientific e-texts or like, it's like it was still education and it was still the sort of reading where – even for the fun parts, you have to be writing notes. So there's still like a kind of a school element of it. And I've been trying to aim this year to read a bit more like just for for no reason other than fun. Just, you know, pure novels, good times. And I just read um, Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. And it is super, super good. It's all these different stories from different points of view, but like um, mostly all like female stories or women um mostly like immigrants and like usually with an african background um immigrants in in england um and the, the stories are kind of connected so there's all different characters i think there's like 12 different points of view but they all kind of link up in different ways to each other so you know you you, you start off with one character and then the next story is from her daughter or like somebody who taught her at school um and that's really nice. It's so nice to be reading stuff for pleasure and just, yeah, would recommend. Yeah, I mean, all the um, fiction books that I'm reading are catered to a much younger audience um, than myself <laughs> right now. So I know, uh, I, I learn a lot about like the funds of rabbits and a lot is also like up to the imagination when it's just like a lot of pictures of cars and then you have to make up your own story with it. So that's also interesting to my mind. Um. <laughs> I mean, I think like I, I know it's I know it's so obvious and stupid, but I got so exhausted by the end of last year that I got in that habit of just like watching bad TV, and that in its turn is exhausting, right? Like it doesn't it doesn't help you mentally. Yeah. Whereas the novels are definitely like letting your mind take a break from quarantine. Where, like you can't take a break while you're watching TV. Not not often. Yeah, um, yeah, it's definitely different. Like it's, it, I mean, people often say that, but it's like junk food. Like you can you can half junk food from time to time and it's a lot of fun but it doesn't really satisfy you in the long run like if you always just eat crisps just like shoving chicken wings into your face at one point not a win for anyone (laughs) i would like to have a vegetable please um Mm. and i think that it's the same with 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 media uh, and I'm not saying like I'm, I also don't want to sound like now that somebody's like books are good, TV is bad. No, there's like bad stuff in both and good stuff in both. But <laughs> I I'm just saying just overall, spent half also, an hour describing the plot of Bridgerton to Yara, like before we started <laughs> the podcast. Instead of him watching Bridgerton, he now has to listen to me explain yeah. Bridgerton, which was yeah mostly me explaining in a lot of detail. The, yeah, the horny scenes in Bridgerton in a lot of detail. 
<laughs> like, yeah. Shall we talk about plants now for a little bit? My favorite plant. And this week is it's me and. As I already told you today over chat that uh, I don't want to repeat the mistake of taking another genus. I'm now taking angiosperms um, as my favorite plant, which is all of the... <laughs> all of the flower plants. Uh, what's your plant. favorite plant? My favorite <laughs> plant is, I think we talked about acacias in the past, right? But I hope we yeah. didn't talk about this specific one, Acacia Senegal or um, related Acacia Seyal. Um, both of them actually also have different names um, that are sort of the technical terms. The Acacia Senegal is also called Senegalia Senegal, um, uh, but is also known under the name of Acacia. And Do you know why that is? Because probably some like ma naming scheme problem thing. Yeah, so, so your Acacias are in Africa, I'm guessing. Yeah. That's why they're called af named after af African countries. Yeah. So, I mean, acacia is kind of a funny, like from a naming point of view, it's, it's quite a, a weird situation because whoever whoever gets named first, species-wise, it gets to keep that name. So, if if two species are called like Yoram, Yoranthum, and then there's like Yoram, Baticum, I don't know, and then they realize that those are not actually related, whatever one got named first should get to keep Yoram as its genus. And in with acacia, there's like acacias in Africa and there's also acacias in Australia. And the African acacias absolutely got named first. But the acacias in Australia, there's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them and there's only a few in Africa. So despite the African ones getting named first, at some point, like the botanist had an argument and the Australia, like Team Australia botanist won. So, like, the originally named African acacias got, had to change their name, which is, is not how it works. It was literally a situation of, like, let's burn all the rules because we can't be bothered renaming, like, several hundred species. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of makes sense. It has a weird aftertaste of... Um, yep. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's exactly, like, colonialism, but, like, yeah, there's a weird thing going on there well, but i can also understand from a purely practical point of view why you would break the rule at this point like no no i think like for me i can understand breaking the rule because of the sheer numbers what's weird is i suspect those same people who would break the rule because of numbers would also not rename a species that for example has been known for tens of thousands of years by an indigenous australian name they'd be like no captain cook named this first in like i don't know only 200 years ago so like i think that's the problem there like this and we've discussed that back on the podcast before right yeah i think so i think yeah now that you told the story i remember that you told it before um and i completely forgot when like i i, I knew that acacia is a word that we say often on the show But I completely forgot all the details about it. But I knew that we we, we didn't talk Aussie about bias. the thing um, about that I, uh, about what I want to talk today. Um, so yeah, these uh, these two plants. But I want to mostly focus on uh, Acacia Senegal or Senegalia Senegal, um, but also uh, Vachelia Seyal or Acacia Seyal. Um, they are, I mean, not technically related, but topically related. Um, They are really cool plants. Um, they are 
these these acacias they grow like shrubs or can grow into trees that are between five and 12 meters tall so fairly large trees however with a fairly thin stem of only like a 30 centimeter diameter so they're like these these skinny tall trees with like a bushy um crown and what they're known for is that they produce gum arabic uh, and that's uh, a compound do you know gum arabic have you ever used it maybe even it's, is it chewing gum? Is it like the it's original in, chewing gum? It's in chewing gum. Um, I think chewing gum originally is like um, latex or like like rubber compounds mixed with gum arabic. Um, because gum arabic is a mixture of polysaccharides and glycoproteins. Um, and that makes it into a, a glue or a binder that can be eaten by humans. And that's why we find it as a food additive in, in quite a lot of products for like stabilizing um, properties. So whenever you want to have something like in, a, in in an emulsion in a bottle for a very long time, gum arabic can help with like keeping everything stick together instead of like separating into phases and then people won't buy your salad dressing because you the oil and water mix uh, uh, separate and you're like, no, my dressing has to be like a perfect homogeneous fluid at all times. Um, that's when you would use gum arabic, for example, amongst other things. Um, uh you also find in stuff like fireworks for example where you want to have a biodegradable glue um in in your cardboard oh thing. cool so you can then yeah it lands somewhere in nature and it will rot eventually instead uh, which you wouldn't do if you would use some sort of like petrol based glue or other stuff um Gum Arabic is mostly produced in Sudan from these acacia trees, um, where like 80% of the world production is made. Um, but there's also all over the Sahel zone, which is the uh, an area south of the Sahara in sort of like Central Africa. Um, uh, there, in many of the countries there, you find um, like find the, the acacias and people who uh, harvest gum, gum Arabic from these trees. Um, what I like have to mention here as well is that um, gum arabica, in, especially in West Africa, was like um, a very important good for trading, which means that European powers exploited and abused the region over centuries. Since the 15th century, um, they were enslaving people, they were exploiting the lands, they were waging wars against uh, between each other, but also against like local powers. Um, they were taking local resources by force. And um, I think it's important to mention that here because like trade with gum arabic uh, is quite old. Um, it's already like during the, like there were, that's why it got the name from like Arabian traders were bringing it across the world already before that. But with um, colonialism, um, it really became a major trade good. So, so far that like pretty much all of the gum arabic in the world was made in West Africa at one point. Um, and yeah, by exploitation of the local people. Um, and then um, today we still find it used like in foods and paints and glue and many other things like in crafting. When you mix pigments, you can buy like gum arabic in solution or as a powder that you can mix with water and then you can add pigments to it and you get a, you get a color, you get something that you can paint with. Um, um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a very... Uh, very important and very cool compound um, and we can get that from the acacia trees but that in itself is pretty cool but um, what that means is that these acacia trees they are also like the pillars of a local economy um, in Mali um, an African country um, 
there today is a sort of rediscovery of gum arabic as a as a good for export and as a thing that can be sort of farmed locally um mali was producing like 70 years ago they were producing quite a lot of gum arabic but then due to like a number of things like um logging for when they were cutting down the trees for for to burn them as fuel but also climate change and political instability meant that like their gum arabic production pretty much was completely crushed to like one percent or something of what it used to be um and now they're rediscovering it and uh, the cool thing about it is that it's a sort of a foraging economy you grow these trees and then you go into the fields where they're growing and you um take the the gum arabic like the, the sap of the tree that contains the compound um you you, you collect that it sort of dries out on Bund, uh, as, as like spots outside of the bark and i think you you hurt the tree a little bit you get the sap you let it dry and then you collect that um uh, and this really helps local economy and what i find especially interesting in the story that i read that we're linking as well from bbc future life or wait um yeah for the, anyway on the, on the bbc and i think we we posted something in the past from from this part of the bbc but um this allows women to have an independent income because the work is mm -hmm. physically not too taxing um it's not dangerous work and so it's like specifically is a way for for local women to make an independent living which also um sort of boosts not only like the economy as a whole but like the small like nuclei Uh, in the economy like small families um who can then make a living off of these trees um in a quite sustainable way because they don't cut down the trees and um they actually sort of care for the trees and make them grow and make sure that the young trees survive which becomes very important in the next thing which is really cool about the, these acacia trees is that they stop the desertification of the sahel zone i think we talked about this in the past right the The Sahara, the, the big Saharan desert is moving south. Um, it's expanding. Um, it already gained like 100 kilometers. Um, and that's... I, like, terrifying. Yeah, first of all, terrifying. And like so many things driven by humans, um, like logging for agriculture and settlements, um, like uh, makes this effect stronger. Um, and there has been something that we talked about in the past as well. I think in one of the earlier episodes of this podcast, we talked about the Great Green Wall Project. Um, that's this idea in uh, in Central Africa to grow essentially a belt of trees um, south of the Sahara that um, stops soil erosion and stops the desertification of the lands. And these acacia trees are part of that. Um, they are like mostly in the Great Green Belt. You find like palm trees and stuff. But these acacia trees um, for, for Arabic gum, they are also used there. And especially in Mali, they're actively reforesting um, with these acacia trees uh, because then you have this dual effect. You stop the Sahara from moving yeah. south and you push local economy with it. Um, so, yeah, that makes it very, like, um, a very cool plant to me um, because we can, yeah, we can, it, it's, it's sort of agriculture that's from the base up it's it's more sustainable like it's more sustainable than just like cutting everything down and plotting stuff on field on on land um where you rather push soil erosion um instead you you grow them you want them to grow like grow as many as as possible of them and in a sort of quite diverse um composition because you anyway want to go foraging there 
because it's also then they're like they're healthier you have like problems with like smaller animals eating on a young tree so you don't want to have like monocultures and stuff so yeah it sounds like a really cool story and i found all of that on uh on the bbc on um let me, on future planet that's the name bbc future planet they have lots of these very cool stories um all around the world for like very cool future technologies that are sustainable and and good for the environment and that's why i also found this story about the acacia trees um so that's acacia senegal and acacia seyal my actual favorite plants this week that's very cool i was just like thinking about it i was i was trying to remember if we had done something that produces a, a plant that produces gum before and we have, we'll link to it, we also talked about Pistachia lentiscus, which is a completely different species, completely different genus, completely different part of the world even, everything. Um, but it makes mastic, which is also similarly has been used as kind of a gummy residue. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, plants, amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Take a message. <laughs> but this is, yeah, I, I really love these stories of, yeah, like dual benefit or, or triple benefit here maybe even. I don't know. Yeah, the the article goes uh, article goes further. Like they are also um, helping with then like the the influx of people. Um, so you have now the local economy growing, and that drives people um, to stay there or to actually come from other parts of Mali to these areas where they can now harvest the gum arabic and make a make a living off of it. That means you stop sort of internal migration, but also sort of. Um, uh, brain drain but, but because many people try to leave Mali to find their luck elsewhere because there's not much opportunity in the country and having these local economies stops that to some extent um, in the article they mentioned that some people that actually wanted to, to to make their way to Italy and they stayed there because they realized they could make a living there harvesting gum arabic um, which then means that local cities can develop and you have like um yeah, overall an increase in quality of life because of that. And I mean, I'm, I, I'm not much of an economist myself, so I don't really understand like all of the intricate details of how such an like economy works, but I find it amazing that you have sort of this one or two tree species that enable all of this without just like, without the production, like without the production of gum Arabic, so many downstream effects and network effects of that would not be possible um and yeah i often forget that or like i'm not aware of this diversity in the place science and it's my turn and today i'm going to be talking about carolyn solomon um and actually i don't know when carolyn was born and that is because she is still alive and it's not on her wikipedia um she's a contemporary scientist who according to her wiki has been active since 2000 but i think actually 2000 was when she became a professor so i mean she has been doing science for a lot longer in her life and was actually stimulated to do science as a very young child which is i think how science begins in many of us um so just to quickly go into her background, she was like into swimming as a kid and grew up in Delaware and the United States. And as a child, she was swimming often in quite heavily polluted creeks. So kind of like gross and green and smucky. And that seems to be the triggering factor which encouraged her to become a scientist, but more specifically to get really interested in environmental um 
policy, like public policy, but also um, like growth of organisms in aquatic systems. So her, she went to Harvard for her undergraduate and then she later did a master's in biological oceanography um, and a PhD in the same subject. So that seems to be very much her focus with like, you know, looking at eutrophification and things like this where humans screw things up and cause growths or changes in the way things grow in, um, yeah, in, in lakes, rivers, pools, the ocean, etc. And, you know, what the consequences of that are. Um, so, yeah, she's looking at mostly nitrogen byproducts. This is like humans doing agriculture, shoving a ton of fertilizer onto the fields, and then this washing off into streams, lakes, rivers. And this then has a carry-on effect where algae primarily, so like this blue-green algae, which is actually like cyanobacteria, um, bacteria and also viruses can kind of frolic and grow as a ba- uh, as a um, an outcome of that. So algal blooms is kind of the, the key message here. But one of the, the things um, that's kind of interesting as far as her current impact on science right now is another thing that happened when she was quite young, which is that when she was a child, she got spinal meningitis. And meningitis is this um, inflammation of like the membranes around the brain and around the spinal cord. So the, these membranes, they have the name meninges, thus the meningitis. And it's not actually super uncommon. You get this meningitis because you get some infection from like bacteria. You get this inflammation. It's quite common to get fever, headaches, like neck stiffness, these kind of symptoms. But you can also have like longer permanent effects. So it's still like fairly common in 2017 apparently there was over 10 million people who got meningitis and then that led to nearly 300,000 deaths um which i think it seems quite high to me um it can be treated if you like various treatments can kind of reduce the risk of death if you do get it i think it goes down to like 15% chance of death once you have contracted meningitis and i th- I guess unsurprisingly based on that, as with many treatable diseases, that means that the prevalence is still in poorer countries or with less access to healthcare. So it's quite prevalent still in sub-Saharan Africa. But for Carolyn, um, getting the meningitis actually led to her being deaf from a very young age. And she came up like in a hearing family, she was deaf. And when she entered Harvard, so when she was doing her undergraduate there weren't any sign language interpreters in the staff. So this was kind of an immediate like bottleneck or a wall. But like luckily, or I guess it's not even lucky. It's like <laughs> neutrally by doing their job, the university then hired um, somebody who would help interpret in sign language. But that was already like midway through Carolyn's first semester there. But because of this, in addition to doing her own research in this kind of eutrophication and, you know, human impacts on, on algal growth and things like that field, um, she has also been really instrumental in working to develop the the participation and the the communication to people who are deaf and hard of hearing, particularly within STEM fields. So she led a workshop in 2012 for the National Science Foundation discussing how you know 
this could actually be considered even in the first place. Um, you know, mentoring opportunities for deaf students throughout their career trajectory. And she then developed a program that came from this to support scientists with hearing loss and interpreters. And she's been, most importantly, I guess, or I mean, not most importantly, but one of her significant contributions is that she has now developed a database of technical terms for scientific terminology in American Sign Language. So if you just think about all the jargon that gets used in science, and then obviously there's not necessarily standardized sign language for these different jargon words. So she has been developing this, I'm, I think with other people, I, I didn't really see who else was involved, but like this is a, a large part of mm. A significant contribution to the field, I would say. And she also um, is now a full professor since 2011 um, in Gallaudet University. And Gallaudet University is, um, I think, in Washington State or Washington, D.C. Those are different, right? Anyway, it's in the U.S. And <laughs> it's actually a... <laughs> to me, they're not, so it's fine. <laughs> Let me quickly look that up. Yeah, Washington, D.C. Um it's officially bilingual as a university with the two languages being English, but also American Sign Language. So it is specifically focused around having accessibility for people with hearing issues or people who are deaf. So I, this is really cool. I didn't actually know that was like specialized university was around. Um, but yeah, that's Carolyn Solomon, who has had like this significant contribution to increase accessibility of science and you know make it possible to communicate to all people which is great yeah that makes me painfully aware of how little in in the past the, like projects i was involved in or they just like like conferences and stuff how inaccessible they were just on that level um i know that very often accessibility is is, is like understood as like wheelchair accessibility or something like very physical very much like like we have to make sure that there are no stairs in the way of getting into the auditorium um but then there's just like a person talking on stage and some like a screen with like a presentation and that's all of it like there's no um yeah there's no sign language interpreter or anything like that or or the other way around like for people who can't see very well like a way of explaining what's visible and breaking that down and I know that like we try our our best to to at least for like in terms of like image descriptions and subtitles to do that but I realize that in my like my science communication work like my professional work this is such an afterthought and I I want to change that it's 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 actually quite terrible thinking how exclusive yeah, so that I is I have to say, I do think these discussions have come up even more in the last few months. And I think part of that is just that, like, people are getting a bit more of a clue, finally, um, as with everything. Like, we are progressing as far as conversations. But I think a lot of that is because of the, the COVID shutdowns and the changes in the way we do conferences. And, yeah, if you're going to give a pre-recorded talk at a conference you can put in subtitles like that is quite doable and we're getting to the point where even there can be automatically generated generated subtitles um it's not perfect it's not great so far um i actually went to a conference in november last year which was the the main speaking language was spanish 
and they were trying to use software that would automatically translate from Spanish to English. So it should have had English subtitles at the um, at the bottom. And I attended the conference and having checked with the organizer that there would be like the possibility to understand something because Spanish, my Spanish is not great. Um, it didn't work at all. It was horrible. It couldn't even pick up the words they were saying in Spanish, let alone translate them um, into English, which again, that's, that's where we are with technology so if we yeah i know it's, it's hard. two like, things right like i think we're now getting to the point where the technology is almost there but there has to also be the willingness to and i mean that technology also gets developed because people have engaged like ha- demand it right like this is user based that we we have these things become norm yeah um but yeah, yeah i think sorry yeah no automatic technology like it's it's still far from from perfect but as you said like pre-recorded talks can have that like i i pre-recorded a talk that was given over over the winter break just after christmas and um i gave them sort of my script that i anyway used to do all of the text and just like here take the script and then they turn that into subtitles um and stuff like that can can be done and i i mean it is already done more and more but i'm just like i'm really saying from a personal point of view like from projects that i was and am involved in we're not really thinking about that like we try to think like how can we do a virtual conference but it would be technically even easier nowadays to just pay a sign language interpreter that's also part of a zoom call and then interpreting the stuff that's said by by varying speakers and having that as well on on screen so people who can't hear very well can see that um but it's something that we, you ha- sort of have to budget and have to think about and budget often is not really the problem it's the, the question of thinking of, about this this stuff beforehand yeah which comes back to the question of having those people involved right like i mean you can see that she has a personal passion to have developed this and that's yeah. often part of the problem if like if anyone who's like not a straight white dude is getting shut out of having like being even involved in these conversations, they just don't get had. That's it is something where I've I've been thinking about this for a while, um, especially in the context of COVID and the implications for people with disabilities and how like also previously a lot of conferences, they do use those excuses of, well, anyway, physical travel is less accessible to those people. And like now it's like, well, those barriers are not even there. I mean, they weren't real in the first place. You were letting them persist when they didn't have to. Um, But now that those barriers are not even there, you're still trying to gatekeep against people by not making like the bare minimum of effort. Now it's, it's clear that it's so much less about possibility and so much more against like attitude and desire from people in power and like just like this cannot be bothered attitude which is just like really not okay and like i've i've been seeing some articles come up on this in the last couple of months i said it has been more prevalent in the discussions and i feel a bit weird about talking about it because i like whenever we're talking about something which is not our viewpoint i always feel like i'm i'm definitely going to say the wrong thing like i'm i'm sure i'm not using the right terminology I don't want to describe anybody's like personal experience in a way that they wouldn't describe it themselves. And sometimes when you read stuff or when you're, you know, trying to quickly say it on a podcast, you say the wrong words. So I, I always am like, oh, I really hope I didn't say the wrong thing. But at the same time, like this is obviously a discussion that is happening, but also needs to be happening more. Um, 
Yeah. So anyway, um, I yeah, just as as I mentioned, I have seen a few more things about this. One of them is that there was the article is called textbook case of disability discrimination in grant applications and this is justin yerbury um who is a professor in neurodegenerative disorders at um an australian university but he also has a motor neuron disease and recently he applied to an australian national health and medical research council um like grant funding round and he missed out and the reason he seems to have missed out was not based on his project proposal, but based on his track record. So they said, relative to the opportunity, there should have been more first and last author publications. And um, Yerbury wrote a Twitter thread discussing how this is really a discrimination because to think that somebody in with his disability could physically produce more than what he has done is it's not realistic and it means that the disability is not um, being taken into consideration. So I'm just going to try and quickly find the thread. So he, he important mentions, he importantly mentions there's two types of discrimination. The first is direct discrimination. So it's when you get treated less favorably um, because you have a disability, which is not what he's talking about here. The second is indiscri- indirect discrimination, where there's a policy that applies across the board to everyone, the same policy. But because the policy is the same for everyone, the same, not like equal it disadvantages group who have some characteristics so this is discriminating because this is not treating people in like treating people in the same way is not the same as giving them equal opportunities right um yeah i mean i have to think of this like i mean it's 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 a very old image but it's this like three people of different heights are standing behind a fence and trying to watch a game that's happening behind the fence and if you give them all the equal treatment, you all give them the same box. They all stand on them. Um, the tall person who can watch over the fence without the box just continues to watch over the fence. The medium-sized person is um, now able to w- look over the fence, but the shortest person can't. Like they ca- still mm-hmm. can't see with with just one box. And that's sort of like equal treatment to all of them but it's still a disadvantage to some of them. And then you change, like you give two boxes to the shirt person and then now they have unequal support but equal access to the thing. Yeah, so the the definition is the difference between equality and equity. It's like we shouldn't be giving the same, like the equal thing we should be making that everybody is an at an equitable space pace place by the end. So um yeah, he had this Twitter thread, but he also applied to the funding body and I think they have yeah, so basically they said we did follow policy, so like actually everything is squared away by our policy. But at the same time, they have said, oh yes, that's true, we should change our policy. So there's like this weird thing of like, well actually it's all done properly, but oh yeah, we really do need to fix our broken system. Yeah. Just like later. Um and I'm not sure that was a few months ago now. I'm not actually sure how this has ended up, but 
it's a pretty important point. And again, as I said, there have been a few different things about this. Even as far back as um, 2019, there was a career question and answer with Isabel Williams, who um, has an autoimmune disease. And she was kind of talking about how she deals with different expectations and also like trying to get a network and how to, you know, deal with people you know, being generally jerks, <laughs> saying you don't look disabled enough to be in this disabled parking, things like that, parking space, things like that. So, yeah. Anyway, um, I don't want to talk about every single person here. The, the focus there was on Carolyn Solomon, but it is something that we haven't talked about yet on the podcast. And as I said, I feel a bit... Yeah, I, and I, I always feel like that. I'm going to say the wrong thing because I'm, I'm not up with, you know, what are the right terminologies, what, you know... I need yeah. to educate myself more, but yeah, guys, go read things. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like we're not trying to to be the voice of of people who are affected by this. We're just trying to sort of raise awareness on the other end of the people making the rules or like. But I mean, I, I think the point is like, as you just said yourself, like if you haven't thought about it and there's like really easy stuff you can do, just at least do those easy things. Like there's some bare minimum stuff and obviously it's, it's not enough, but like let's at least start by doing the bare minimums and then we can move up from there. Right. Like yeah, that's exactly seems like a, at least some approach. <laughs> let's talk, talk, talk about bias. Bias. Tegan, are you cursed by knowledge? I mean, when I think of the curse, I think not about knowledge, more about blood flow, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I, I sometimes, like when I read about this um, bias first, just like the title, it's the curse of knowledge that I want to talk about today. I thought it's this idea that the more you know about a horrible thing, the more despair you feel. Like, Or is it just like really old school, like Adam and Eve? Yeah, I think in this case it's 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 not that, but I I thought of like insert like whatever thing goes horribly wrong right now, and the more you know about it, the more um, despair you feel. But it's not actually what this bias is about. The curse of knowledge is about the idea that once we have learned a skill, um, a topic, whatever, it's really hard for us to get back into the mindset of what it was like to not know these things, and. Mm -hmm. This has various impact. I mean, the most obvious for us as sort of science communication people is um, that like we understand molecular mechanisms in the cell very well. And therefore, it's sometimes hard for us to imagine somebody who has no idea how DNA works. And then when we try to explain that, we always come from our point of view of already knowing it, um, while the sort of the person that we're talking to comes from a completely different point of view that it's hard, that is hard for us to imagine. Um, and so very often when it comes to like designing like curricula or like in general, like teaching methods, it's important not to ask the teachers what is the best method, but to get uh, feedback from the students, from the people who are actually being taught, um, because they are the ones who have the, who don't know the thing already. And they are the best to, to judge whether the method works for them or not. Um, instead of talking to the teachers. But what I also found very interesting about this curse of knowledge is it's actually an idea that's very often um, used in, in econom uh, economy or e economics. Um, because it's the uh, idea that if you, for example, if you want to sell something 
um, and you, I don't know, you want to sell cheeses and you know the cheese market very well. You know what is a good cheese and you know what is a bad cheese and you have sort of the whole range and now you want to price them with all your knowledge and you're like, this is like a cheap cheese. You can get like 80% of all cheeses are better than this cheese. So like I'm going to make it super cheap because like it's bad cheese. There's much better cheese out there. And then you have a very expensive cheese in like, or like a very good cheese and like this is so much better than all the rest of the cheeses this is very priced it's very valuable and so you price one of them very low one of them very high and then your customers come in who know nothing about cheese and they're like they would be willing to pay more for the cheap cheese um, because they don't understand like how much worse it is than the average and they don't understand why they should pay so much for the good cheese because like they don't understand how it relates to the rest of the cheese and that's in economics a problem when you want to sort of meet the best price in terms of like selling the most um but it's also uh, that it also drives that it in the point that like you lower the prices so it's actually better for the customer so depending on what the way you look at it um uh it's a good or a bad thing that like you you get some like lower quality stuff cheaper than what it's actually worth or um you undersell your product produce but overall, I find it quite interesting that there's sort of a, a technical description for this phenomenon that I also know quite well. Like I talked, said in the last episode that I talked to these like students and um, some of their questions and some of their way of looking at like DNA um, metabolism of just like uh, turning DNA into protein. Um, I, I have my own understanding of it and therefore I thought like they would know it as well. And they had a different understanding and they had like different questions that I didn't anticipate. And so I definitely fell um, sort of victim to the curse of knowledge there in that respect. Although I try always to sort of have this idea of like trying to think about my target audience and thinking about like, what do they know? What do I have to tell them so they can follow me? That's also why on this podcast, we always try to not research anything we're discussing. <laughs> I think if we talk about, for example, like meningitis and we can't even work out how to pronounce it properly, like, obviously, <laughs> that's a deliberate choice we've made to save ourselves from the curse of knowledge. <laughs> Very good point. Yeah. <laughs> there's like, <laughs> there's this weird thing going from being like a, a scientist to a science communicator where it's it feels so awkward to talk about things that you only partially know about like when you're like an academic your job is to really know your topic right like you should know your topic better than anyone in the world and now it's like um so i heard this thing and i quickly looked <laughs> over the abstract like while yaron was talking about his thing and yeah yeah it's true I mean, we, you don't have to imagine what it's like not knowing things if you never learn things. I mean, that's pretty much exactly. our approach. <laughs> that's, that's, I feel, that's what the take-home message is. We should learn less things and thus be more confident at communicating them, maybe? Um, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's a good idea to go into like a classroom like, I know as little as you guys. <laughs> Let's try to figure out together because I have no idea how this works. <laughs> this is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. And sort of uh, following up from my, my bias segment, I have um, another 
bias-related um, story. Um, there has been a, a very recent study from the University of Copenhagen um, about why we pick um, certain fruit over other fruit, uh, and especially the idea that brown fruit uh, or sort of like fruit that shows signs of being older than sort of fresh and like nice looking fruit um why we pick one more often than the other and it comes down to uh, negative emotions that we have about brown fruit um so they did some some experiments where they showed people different kinds of fruit of like different ripeness stages and although they were tasting the same all of these different fruit um, they looked different And mm -hmm. during the, the experiments, they figured out that it's it's down to like very core negative emotions when looking at the bad fruit, even though when they were eating at the same time, like nice looking fruit, it sort of just reinforced their feeling that the brown fruit must be bad because they're eating the nice fruit and it tastes nice and therefore the brown fruit must taste bad, although they both taste the same because it was not off yet. And of course, this has then implications for like... Um, buying behavior for customers in stores which impacts then like food waste and so on if you have like a banana that has a couple of brown spots and is not bought anymore even though it's perfectly good to eat um, that goes to waste and food waste is bad on many many levels um, and so uh, this this study doesn't really have a solution how we can fight that but it understands the mechanism behind it anymore like it's really like it's not a conscious decision it's not that they're looking at the brown fruit and like calculating in their mind how many days they have left until they can eat it and decide this is not the right like this is not enough time so i don't buy this it's a very sort of emotional core response um that i would say is harder to attack like harder to fight Yeah, so I want to know if it's emotional core because we have been, like, because evolutionarily speaking, it is bad for us to eat rotten fruit. Like, it can actually make us sick. Or if it's because we've been trained by perfect looking fruit in the, like, I mean, there's, this is a consumer driven thing. Like, is that, is that intuitive or like, yeah. It's, it's, it's a good question, yeah. It's really interesting to me. Like I know my my parents when they when they were raising us, my dad mentioned once that he like he doesn't he's very picky with food. He's extremely picky. He doesn't eat most things. But I didn't realize he was very picky until I was like 26 years old. And part of that is because you know, it's just the person you know, you accept that. But I know that when we were children, he also deliberately made an effort to never say that something wasn't tasty he wanted to always say that it was tasty even if he himself personally hit like blue cheese or like brussels sprouts like he would always like encourage us to try it without saying mm, yucky mm. and the same with like bugs and things like that my parents were very much about like here pat the spider as opposed to ill gross the spider is walking near you so i wonder how much of that is just learned behavior from Yeah, parents removing stuff. For example, I have a friend who mo removes both ends of the banana. So, like, I think it's quite normal that we remove the bottom bit of the banana, which has, like, the black kind of edgy yeah. thing in it. But I have a friend who removes both the bottom of the and the top of the banana. And this, to me, I don't understand it. And I've questioned this friend and I've said, why are you doing that? And they're like, yeah, I know it doesn't make sense. I was just taught like this. I just remembered it when we were still having lunch together at work and you would bring like different kinds of vegetable and fruit, you would always eat much more of the fruit and vegetable than I would eat. Like you would always go like 10 to 20% further 
in terms of like cutting off or like leaving aside than what I would do. Um, I, th I just thought it's because you're Australian, you're a little bit weird, and therefore like you you don't have a lot of things over there, and therefore I thought yeah maybe you will learn to like take all of the calories in the food that you can get. What do you mean we don't have a lot of things? You people literally can only grow cabbage, and you're saying we anyway. I definitely have a more tolerance for like overripe or like stuff that's going past its use by date for like fruits and vegetables. I'm like okay, I just have to cook it because I think. Most fruits and vegetables, they can't make you violently ill unless they taste really bad. Like, you're not going to get... It's not like meat. Meat, you'll get sick without it even tasting weird. Whereas mostly fruit and vegetables, it's going to taste pretty bad before you're going to start, like, yep. splurting from both ends. Okay, I also got somebody to do my homework for me. Somebody on Instagram, on Instagram sent me this really cool article from Scientific American, which is called This Flower is Really a Fungus in Disguise. Um, it was published on February the 2nd. Have you seen that already? I, I've seen that. I've like I've bookmarked it somewhere. I couldn't find it anymore. I knew that I had a story about a flower somewhere. I couldn't find it anymore for the life of me. I was looking at uh, for this the whole day. So I'm actually happy that you brought it up because... Yeah, I I read. It. I was like, I need to bookmark this, and I couldn't find it again. It's it's really really cool. So um, I I know again, uh, this is not a visual medium, but I really encourage you to go and check this out because there is a photograph that includes three flowers in it, except one of them is a flower, and the two other ones are fungi. So what happens is there's a certain kind of what's the name of the species? Let me just check. It's called. Xyris, X-Y-R-I-S, would that be Xyris, Xyris? Um, that's the grasses, so they belong to that genus. And then there's a fungus, which is a fusarium, and then xerophilium, which I guess means it likes to sit on Xyris. Yeah, probably, yeah. Maybe. And fusarium um, is a very common like fungus, in like, uh, like a parasite fungus. Yeah, so again, this nasty fungus, or very clever fungus, I think we should say, it it infects the xerus plant, but it kind of sits on them just before they flower, and it somehow is blocking their blooms at kind of a molecular level. It's preventing them from making their own flowers, and then it's growing itself to look suspiciously like a flower. And it's this bright yellow flower, and it has, like, flowery parts, and the fungus looks fairly convinced like it's a flower and the idea is that then a pollinator should come down to try and you know get some nice pollen but instead it just ends up getting fungal spores on it and thus helps the fungus reproduce instead like sends that fungus to another plant um but yeah this is it's insanely cool i have to say it's yeah. I, it, I just don't know what to say. You've got you've got to go look at it, guys. Yeah, As just, Yoram just said, he saw it once and it's never left his mind. So yeah, just like the evolutionary history that led to like slowly forming a flower for this fungus. I mean, fungi fungi usually don't look like flowers, so it's and then also to like mimic it well enough that it actually tricks pollinators. Yeah, it's just like it's one of these like crazy things that you stumble upon. That's sort of the outcome of of hundreds of thousands of years uh, of evolutionary history and then suddenly you have like a fungus that mimics a flower and grows on the flower and then uses that to to hijack pollen transport to get its own spores transported yeah crazy stuff and i, I remember I just, the image and it's really like at a glance you can't tell them apart and even if you look a little bit closer they're very very similar 
And so just the thing is that at, at a glance, you can't tell them apart. But apart from like morphologically, like physically looking at the macro level, like this flower, it also has ultraviolet reflectance, apparently. And it's also emitting some volatiles, which might also be involved somehow in attracting insect pollinators. So it's a tricky, tricky fungus. Like it's doing its darndest to get visited by bees. And the scientists also did field observations and they saw that indeed both the xerus flowers and the pseudo flowers, the fungal flowers, were being visited by bees, which really suggested they are successful in doing what they want to do, which is tricking those poor bees. Um, the publication is called Pseudoflowers Produced by Fusarium Xerophilium on Yellow-Eyed Grass Xera Species in Guyana, a novel floral mimicry system, question mark. And that came out in Fungal Genetics and Biology um, at the end of last year. Yeah. Uh, I have, uh, you mentioned already uh, that somebody did your homework. I also asked for people to do my homework on Twitter. And so I just want to go quickly through a couple of them, of the, of the replies um, that I got. Uh, one of them um, is the story of a moss that was believed to be lost for a, a long time because it couldn't be found in the wild anymore. So the thing was like last seen in the 19, in like 1985 and before that in, in 1900. So it was already like, It, it had very long stretches between its sort of uh, the times it was spotted in the wild. Um, it's of uh, it's a moss of the genus uh, Spagnum, um, and it was um, found in the coastal plains of Puerto Rico. And yeah, it's been what is it like 1985? That's like over well over 30 years ago. Uh, ago it was last seen, and now they found it again. And it um, like we're linking to a tweet from uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Amelia Masset, Masset, I guess, um, who's like posing next to the moss that she discovered. And uh, if you want to see a very happy botanist, go go see that because I imagine that's like a very cool finding, um, a plant that hasn't been seen for well over 30 years. Um, so thank you to at basic Gabriel who linked that. Um, <laughs> thank you for doing my homework. Um, the other thing um, was li linked to me by or like mentioned by at Mike Bock or um, who then uh, who told me that they learned in the last seven days that atmospheric oxygen in in the past was at such a high level that it um, helped like insects to grow really really tall and that's due to the evolution of lignin in plants because that meant that suddenly um, plants were able to capture a lot more carbon from the air and re in, in the process sort of sequester a lot of carbon and release a lot of oxygen and that led to like oxygen levels of around 30% um, and that had like major Im uh, implications for um sort of the, the species that evolved during that time. And then I found a paper to sort of um, learn more about this. And it's about uh, atmospheric oxygen in um, the Panerozoic uh, <laughs> time. Um, uh, it's a paper that's already uh, a few, like from 1999, where they're talking um, about these elevated levels of oxygen and how um, forest fires, for example, could be a way to then regulate the oxygen level to sort of a lower equilibrium that we're used to now because you would then have all of the lignin build up but then you would have forest fires that would then sort of 
um, take oxygen again away from the atmosphere um, and release some of the carbon again and then you would go to sort of a lower equilibrium state than what you would have when you had this like explosion of um, plant carbon sequestration into lignin into like special carbohydrates that, that make like woody structures essentially um, so yeah that was something really cool I, I I never thought about this like what that like the, the large scale implications of plants learning to become trees um, is what it really is um, and yeah I found that very cool so thank you for that suggestion and the last one is I think of I would say limited use to most our <laughs> listeners but if you work with maize <laughs> it might be interesting to, for you to know that um, like when you want to do genetic engineering on maize you need to induce embryonic colors that's a special like sort of pluripotent tissue that um, is stem cells um, and you need that to then regenerate your, your maize plants um, and it's really hard to turn maize into this sort of callous state where it's uh, stem cells and on top of that it's not only maize like you don't have to just figure out a protocol for maize you have to figure out a protocol for every line that exists of maize so every sort of variety that exists has its own special treatment that it needs to get colors and therefore if you want to work with it it's really annoying because you figure it out in one line and then you can't use that knowledge for the other lines that you also want to work with and you have to start over again. So that's from at Marie Jaguar. Thank you for that insight into maize breeding. That was my homework done by other people. Thank you so much. I think that's kind of a, the general theme of, you know, why we tend to use model organisms in science because often even if you're using closely related to species to something you've previously studied, you can't necessarily use the same protocols. There might be slight differences in what that plant or animal does or, you know, the metabolites it produces, which blocks you from using what you had thought was standard molecular biology techniques. So, yeah. 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 Generally important take-home message. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, I have something which you might have already seen, Yaron, but I think it's a little bit up your alley. It's an AI that is called Dali. Have you seen it? Mm, no, at least I don't remember the name Dali. Maybe if you tell me what the AI does, I can... Well, can you guess from the name? So it's Dali, which is D-A-L-L and then E. And it's a portmanteau which is referencing Wally, yeah. the the robot, but also Salvador Dali. So can you guess what it does? Uh, I mean, Wally collects um, trash and on Earth and looks very cute and is a very good movie. And I think Dali that covering drew, the yeah yeah, and, and Dali drew like the, the the molten clocks and all kinds of weird, absurd stuff. Yeah, so famously a surrealist artist. I think um, the the Wally is kind of linking to the fact that this is an AI. It's not a person, and then the Dali is linking to the art. But also this, so it's it's an AI that is making art, but it's kind of doing mash up art where it's creating images that don't necessarily already exist. So it's not just like searching for something. It's it's much more involved in generating something new. And the examples they gave, for example, were um, things like an armchair in the shape of an avocado, a painting of a capybara, which is one of these kind of small rodent things, or like a large rodent, like a guinea pig, a big guinea pig <laughs> sitting in the field at sunrise, um, a radish, 
I think a small radish wearing a tutu, a baby daikon radish in a tutu walking a dog. And all of these things, um, there's actually a blog post which has like a list of tons of these these things that it's been requested to draw. And it seems to be doing them quite well, to be honest. I'm going to like link Yoram in and see if he can comment on what. Yeah, yeah, no, oh. I, I have it open already. Um, oh, great. And yeah, it's really cool. Like in, in my work stuff, I had to learn about machine learning now, um, especially about the tool that they use, GPT-3. It's like a massive model of a neural network that has been trained with like, it's it's one of the largest data sets that we ever used to train a neural network. And the cool thing about this, like the outcome of it is really that you can give this thing like, a, a written paragraph of, of what you want it to do and then it understands it and then it turns it into code and then it does it and so one of the things is like artwork apparently but i've i've talked to some people who said that like you can tell it to be a chat, chatbot you can tell it please be a chatbot that talks about like politely about um the the library and um like helps people to find the right bookshelf and then you can also give it like a database with all the bookshelves and then that's all the instructions that you give it. And then it's a chatbot that works. Um, you don't have to like write a line of code. You don't have to like be an expert in, in this thing. Um, at, at least that's how they explained it to me. And this really, it sounded like magic to me. And But it fits now with this Do, uh, DALI or, um, tool where they tell it to do something and it understands what you mean and does it. It's really yeah so there's there's kind of two amazing things here the first is that it's actually understanding language in the way that we use it which has always been a problem right usually you have to write the correct words to get the correct response so like basic like at the basic level computer programming is quite sensitive to the way you speak the language you speak um and this again as you said it's it's understanding things like a professional high quality illustration of a giraffe turtle chimera which those are not normal kind of computing related words and then the second amazing thing is that it's it's making these images in a a really cohesive way that looks like a human would make them it doesn't look like a creepy swirly mess that has come up from a computer right it looks like something that's a child would draw yeah in many cases yeah um this gpt3 thing it's it's pretty amazing um i while you mentioned this now like um the guardian published an article that uh, was written by this ai um and when you read it you can't tell that it's an ai and it's really cool because they they gave this um the the software they just gave it the opening paragraph so that was written by a human and then, then it gave it sort of a couple of um, guidelines of how to write the rest of this this article um, then they let it run like five times and they sort of got five coherent versions um, about it and it's, it was about a topic um, uh, where they asked it um, to be like n- to, to not be afraid of AI and why we as humans should not be afraid uh, of it um, and then they edit them together but they said that the editing took much less time than um, so they, they wrote verbatim like, this article was written by GPT-3. Uh, it's a cutting-edge language model that uses machine learning to produce human text like it. And then they go on and say, like, it was easier to cor- like edit 
the outcome of this machine than it was for most texts written by humans. So they, they sort of put it mm -hmm. into their general editing uh, pipeline that they anyway have as a sort of journalistic outlet, uh, had to correct less things and had a text that in the end, um, if you just read it without the context of it, you would have no idea that this was an AI that wrote it. Um, so that's, yeah, pretty amazing. It probably makes quite standard mistakes as well. I can imagine that, you know, if you edit consistently somebody who speaks a different first language um, than English, you can pick up what mistakes they're likely to make based on how their language differs from English. I wonder if you have like some other things where like you kind of pick up patterns that are specifically highlighting the the computer nature, the non-personal nature. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder that as well. Like if there's some things in there as well. I mean, you see that sometimes with like these image generation AIs that they make mistakes and then they're quite visible. Um, then like there's this one thing that's also, like, I think it's based on a similar model. This face does not, or this person does not exist. Yeah, uh, we've discussed that on the podcast. This cat does not exist and this person does not exist. Yeah, and they sometimes in the background, they have like weird artifacts from the image generation. I imagine that you have that as well for um, for the text that's generated. Um, yeah, I think with the person one, for me, they were blending male and female faces. And you could see because there was often what we would consider like male distinguishing features, like like a beard with a female accessory. So they would like have a headband on, which is like... Mm -hmm. Again, something that has to happen, but it's something that is not usual what we usually say. Um, it was something where it was very clear to us that this was something different from what we're used to saying. Yeah, yeah. It's machine learning is uh, is yeah. As I said, it's it's close to magic, but at the same time, what I also learned from from researching this for my job is that with GPT three, we are sort of very close to what's technically possible right now we can't get much it's better it's gonna get so hard for like teachers to read essays you know get their students to actually write essays i mean it's already tricky for them right like yeah but if i can just tell this machine to write my essay and then make minor edits for you in english that's that's um that's hard but these things that they are very much english exclusive right now um you i mean you could technically so there's also in english it's, it's hard or it's easy in english? it's easier i mean th this this yeah. thing was trained on like I, uh, millions or billions of sort of english text inputs right. um but if you want to do the same thing in german there's nothing that's equivalent to it right now because nobody wants to spend the same money that was spent on this software in german so um therefore like in english yes you have these amazing capabilities but if you take many other languages that are spoken around the world like spanish or i don't know if there's something like this already for for like mandarin or, or chinese um but uh yeah so there are there are limitations there and um so teachers if you don't want your students to just get the ai to write their essays you should ask them to write it in german that's what i'm hearing yeah, although like there's also AI assisted translation. There's like this Deep L software that I'm using quite often as well, and their results are also amazing. Like the like everybody's joking about Google Translate, how you can tell like this does like weird botchy translations that sort of get the point across but don't really work. Um, with this Deep L software that's also machine learning based, um, it's 
like when I use that to translate like from English to German or from German to English, I have to correct very little of it. And it's pretty much perfect when it comes out of the software. So if you are a language teacher and you're teaching people to translate stuff, um, it's really hard to spot uh, translations that are done by machine learning now. Cat fact. Uh, I don't think we've mentioned this before. I hope not. Um, <laughs> it's not necessarily a cat fact, but it's a fact about purring. Have we talked about this before? <laughs> I, I brought a purring rat the other day, but I don't think uh, that's what you this meant. This is about crickets that purr. No, I don't think we talked about this. So there's a new paper out in Natcoms, which is talking about purring crickets. And it's actually the follow-up of some previous work um, that came out. I think the original article was in 2018 in the American Naturalist. And basically, some scientists have discovered that crickets have started to purr. And this is um, populations of Pacific field crickets, which are, shall I try this? Taliogu. Grillus oceanicus? Sure. Teleogrillus, I would say. <laughs> I'll um, take it. <laughs> yeah. So the male crickets sort of make this... Normally they make a chirping noise, right? Like you know how what a cricket sounds like. It screams and chirps to tell females in the very wide vicinity to come close to it. And then once a female gets close enough, it makes another kerfuffle with it screaming and chirping to say, hey, check me out. I'm so sexy. Don't you want to mate with me? And that's really great. But at some point, the crickets have been changing how they're screaming and singing. So um, over the different years, they've sort of stopped singing. They've just gone a little bit quiet. Um, and then they've sort of started speaking again, and then at some point they started purring. And <laughs> the researchers think that this might have to do with the fact that they're being attacked by parasites. Um, there's a, a type of fly that is an endoparasite fly, and the fly is also listening into the song of the cricket. So when the cricket is trying to woo its beloved, it accidentally woos an endoparasitic fly, which is not ideal. And so the theory is basically that by changing their sounds, the crickets can still manage to um, woo the women, not the women, the female crickets, um, but not attract the parasitic flies. And one of the sounds that they have adapted to is purring. Which, sure. I couldn't, <laughs> f- I couldn't find any um, sound bites of these purring f- crickets. Um, yeah. I mean... Yeah, and they also don't really know how they purr. Like... Usually the chirping sound is this rubbing of the, the wings together, right? Yeah, yeah. that's and what I want to say. You were saying screaming. I wanted to be like, well, actually, it's not screaming. It's like rubbing the, the wings or the legs against like a sort of rough part of their body that makes like the, the this like chirping sound. Yeah. Um, so there it is. <laughs> it's, it's not certain how they've, they've gone from, I don't know, chirping with their not with their voice boxes to purring yeah but it's kind of interesting i think it's it's really weird yeah it's it's uh 
selection pressure at, at, at work. Like we can see how all the loud ones get endosymbiont, now that's a parasite. Parasite. means that it's uh, like a parasite inside them that's really disgusting. Well, I think it's a parasite. It's a fly, so I'm guessing it lays its eggs inside them. That would be yeah. my... I didn't actually look at what it does. Still, that, still not fun. Um, so yeah, I can understand yeah, so how they the, changed the way of, of chirping to avoid that. Yeah, in this new um, article that came out in February in Natcoms, they say in field studies, female crickets responded respond positively to purrs, but eavesdropping parasitoid flies do not, suggesting purring may allow private communication among crickets. That's nice. Isn't that nice? <laughs> so with that, I think we're at the end of this show. Um, the when you want to talk uh, if you want to talk to us and um do our homework give us feedback or just reach out um, we're very happy to to hear you uh, you can talk to me on twitter that's at plants pipettes on instagram and on facebook it's normally me it's at plants and pipettes and we also have a website uh, at uh, that's plantsandpipettes.com where we publish uh, about one to two articles every week about uh, cool stories from the world of plant sciences. Um, the last story I think you wrote, right? It was about monkeys who use um, specific plants to rub them all over their fur. Yeah, I think it's quite funny because um, it's plants that are probably present uh, making secondary metabolites to protect themselves and the monkeys have realized that these metabolites have protective properties, including protecting against maybe insects bites, but maybe also bacteria. So as a result of trying to protect themselves, the plants are getting chewed up by monkeys who then like rub the chewed up plants over their, their faces and their bodies. So poor plants. I mean, it's the same with tobacco. It's making all of these secondary metabolites to be toxic and, and bad for insects and humans be like, oh, let me smoke that. I want to have that in my body. Um, and then like taking the leaves, rolling them up and lighting them on fire. Yeah, but remember that slightly not very scientific book that we read for Plant Book Club, <laughs> where according to that person, the tobacco planned that, planned that because tobacco knew that we would get addicted to it and therefore grow it in different parts of the world. Yeah. <laughs> Fair Spoiler enough. alert, it did not. And that actually reminds me, we will be recording a new Plant Book Club. This week, we're reading plants that kill a natural history of the world's most poisonous plants. Um, so that should be released sometime next week or in the next couple of weeks. So look out for that as well. Yeah. It would be very nice of you if you would rate us wherever you can rate podcasts. Um, that can be on like your iTunes app or wherever else. Um, there's many places I heard these days now where you can like assign stars to podcasts. Please do. <laughs> what is happening? Um, that's all from us today. Goodbye. Opening closing music, Caruana by Philip Gross. Goodbye. Goodbye.